when I started rejecting again, that's when I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'll embrace my story, start telling it. And once I did that, I found the power in that because people started messaging and saying, oh my gosh, this is me as well. I didn't know anyone else was going through this. And, you know, we started talking and it was just this big relief that I wasn't the only one. Whether it's the clothes you wear to work or a metaphor for putting up a front, we all wear a uniform. But often there's a lot going on behind the uniform, and many of us are reluctant to express how we are really feeling. Each week on Behind the Uniform, Dr Izzy Smith and Captain Hugo Tooby will be joined by a special guest as they talk openly and honestly about their experiences with mental health. Nothing will be off limits, so prepare yourself for tears, laughter and goosebumps. Welcome everybody to Behind the Uniform. It's season two, episode three. We're getting through the episodes, which is bloody amazing. And Izzy, you're uh, you're in your scrubs, you're in hospital, but you're squeezing in a quick little intro recording. Such a classic standard Izzy morning. I was running late, got my gym session in, eating porridge in the car, made a mess, ran in, doing this intro, but all worth it because we have such a great guest on the podcast today. Um, first female, which is, you know, about buddy time mm. and she's wonderful i listened through this episode and we said about all of them but it was one of my favorites and we talked about things that might seem really heavy but there were so many laughs and light-hearted moments and tell us about our guests that we've got coming in so our guest today is a remarkable lady called lauren rowe and lauren is a 30 year old who lives with cystic fibrosis a chronic invisible illness which she's been living with her entire life and the life expectancy of someone with CF is 38. So being 30, as Lauren puts it herself, she's a senior, but she's extremely sort of positive and inspiring in the way she talks about how she sort of navigated her way through these challenges her entire life. And what I found in particularly amazing is the fact that she was only two months out of a second double lung transplant when she did this recording with us. And before this lung transplant, her lung capacity was about 15%. So even me having a small breath in now was essentially her entire lung capacity. So it's pretty remarkable. And it's something that a lot of people probably don't know much about, but I learned so much. Um, It was an amazing chat and um, yeah, lots of takeaways is. And Hugo, this might sound like a really niche topic that people are like, how on earth will I relate to this? But we talked about so many important concepts and principles that I think are really relevant to life. It sounds glum, but we talked about the fact, you know, we're all going to die one day and we need to make the most of life. But we won't give too much more away. Maybe let's get started with the episode. Lauren Rowe, welcome to Behind the Uniform. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Lauren. Before we get into your amazing life, um, we have the same question we ask all of our listeners. Without overthinking it too much, what are you doing when you're at your happiest? I'm clenching my pelvic floor because I'm probably about to pee my pants because I'm laughing so hard. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's what I'm doing. I'm usually with someone that I love or care for, or usually with someone. Otherwise I'd probably be crazy just laughing by myself in my room. But I mean, when I'm at my lowest and I think of somewhere I want to be, that's definitely the place I want to be is comfortable enough and with people and and laughing it's my (laughs) go-to i love it love it lauren and um having looked at a few of your um youtube videos and videos you've done i think uh 
couple of words I'm sure you've heard thousands of times, you know, bu- bubbly and positive, and you seem <laughs> to have that, uh, that aura about you and that big smile. And um, I definitely uh, laughed and, you know, in a good way. Oh, some I'm of your so videos. glad you, you laughed. Great sense of humor, which we love. Oh, thank you. So I suppose for the listeners to start off, Lauren, it might just be for people listening who are not even sure what CF is or cystic fibrosis is. It's obviously a chronic uh, illness that you live with and you've lived with your whole life. If you just wanted to explain what uh, cystic fibrosis or CF actually is. Yeah, I mean let's just say it really quickly um, and short. It's a genetic illness, which we have to specify. It's not contagious people. It's um, a genetic illness that affects mainly the lungs and digestive system, but any producing organs. It creates thick, sticky mucus, which creates infection and then deterioration and then eventually death. That's it in a nutshell. Did you know what CF was, Hugo, before this? To be honest, not much about it. No, I'll, I'll put yeah. my hand up to say I learned more about it from seeing uh, a movie Five Feet Apart, I think it was, yeah. uh, a couple of years ago. And that was probably, I thought it was a fantastic movie, but my best um, understanding of, of what it was. But before that, not much. Yeah, that was probably the first mainstream thing we've actually had. Like it's getting more popular now, getting doing the rounds. But yeah, it's definitely not a thing people had heard of with me growing up. That's for sure. So Lauren, you gave a very concise explanation of cystic fibrosis. You've probably given that explanation many more times in your life than you'd ever want to. (laughs) I'm going to just explain a little bit for our listeners and we can talk about how it's impacted you. Mm -hmm. For people with cystic fibrosis, essentially there's a very big spectrum of the severity. Some Mm -hmm. people it's not picked up until adulthood. Um, For me in endocrinology, men might be having problems for, you know, uh, having a baby. Um, Whereas some people, um, which was my understanding in your case from birth, it can be associated with bowel obstructions, lung problems. Um, And with that severe case, children are usually in and out of hospital, lots of time off school, you know, nasty infections. And you went through all of that in your, when you were really, really young, Mm. very involved in the medical system. Most kids just running around not a care in the world biggest problem is their mum's making their clean their room can you tell us a bit about for you growing up with such a severe chronic illness and how it impacted you yeah I think it impacts you differently at different stages of your life so you know as a child like let's go back to preschool um bless my mum uh I'd go to I'd go to play group or preschool and my mum would say you know I'm not allowed to play with the other kids until I've done all of my jumps on the trampoline, on the trampoline, which sounds mean, but it's not because I needed to do that physical activity to keep my lungs healthy. Um, so I actually, yeah, I was diagnosed at birth with a bowel obstruction and, um, and unfortunately I, I had to go in for surgery again when I was three years old and contracted a very bad bug, uh, which is uh, MRSA, uh, which is a, a staff um and then since then my my lungs were were never the same basically um it was just a slow deterioration and then a putting off of that from then on but um and, and to do that i mean this is this is the problem with cf there is so much involved that i feel like you never know how much information to give but um so you know there was a lot of isolation growing up um in saying that though, you know, when you're a kid, you're very resilient because you've only got your little micro world around you. So of course I'd be upset because I'd be in hospital two to three weeks at a time, missing a lot of school. So, you know, when you're little and you've got those friendship clicks, you know, 
you miss a couple of weeks and then you're out on the outs again and you know all of that um, and I just wanted to be like the other kids really I, I didn't want to have to take tablets before I eat I didn't want to have to go home and do physiotherapy and nebulizers because that would be an average of two to three hours a day of that stuff um, you know and then you you merge into adolescence and then I think in adolescence you start getting introduced to the whole world and then you realize the impact that this will have on on the bigger on the bigger side of things so for instance uh year 12 constantly you know what they're like on year 12 you know your future is everything and at that point I was quite sick and I knew I didn't have much of a future at that point uh, so that was very hard and my priorities were always very different from the average person Lauren sorry can you just explain when you said you felt like you didn't have much of a future at that point can you explain exactly what you meant um, so I was in year 12 and I, I made a point to myself that I'm going there to make friends. That's more of a priority for me and, and try my best at school. Um, but I also got even worse during that year. And you know by what you're capable of, of where your lungs are at. And I knew with my lung function, with what I was physically able to do was less and less each day. You know, uh, year 12, you've got full of 18th birthday parties. And I had to watch my body slowly deteriorate over that year of birthday parties. So each birthday party I went to, like I went out on the dance floor, I wanted to dance with my friends, but I couldn't, I felt like I was suffocating. So I just had to walk off the dance floor. And then the next birthday party, I couldn't make it to the time it ended. So you've got these little clues, plus you've got the science behind it when you're talking to your doctor. Um, so yeah, I knew in myself and I knew from what the doctors were saying, uh, look, you, you're starting, you you're merging more in towards you'll be in end stage CF probably by next year. And Lauren, with, with that, and it's something that uh, I'm sure you, you, you talk about what science says, but from an early age or when you, you find out you've got CF and then growing up, do they talk to you about the sort of the, the life expectancy and expectation management or do they try and sort of shy away from that and, and, and let you yeah. kind of live the life that you have? I was very... I don't know if protected the right word, but in a very optimistic surrounding. So my doctor never gave up hope. He even sat me down, said, I won't give up on you. Um, and my parents were very optimistic people. And the advice we got from my doctor was never look at any articles uh, or go onto the internet, uh, always ask me first. And that was kind of a general rule. And Luckily, in a way, there wasn't a lot out there because if there was, it was very depressing. So back in the 90s, I mean, for me, the average life expectancy in when I was born was 12 and a half years old, I think. And, and you know, and if you've got that in your head, then, then you're obviously going to think about that. So I, I was the, the crazy kid, you know, in year two running around going, you know, well, if I was learning history and I said, well, I wouldn't have been part of that and my teacher was like oh how come I said I'd be dead by then because they had no you know they had, didn't have this like it was very matter of fact but um you know uh you know actually funny story when I was 11 I was like oh I'm just like Jesus because I died and came back to life too like you know <laughs> you've had a sense of humor from a young age <laughs> it's interesting Lauren it shows we use senses of humor as a coping mechanism and sometimes people can say you shouldn't make jokes about those type of things but actually if that feels right for you and that helps that's not a bad thing either absolutely and like you know it, it's me I'm talking about of course I would censor myself more you've got to read the room of what's appropriate and what's not you, you've talked a couple of times about lung 
function. Um, and mm-hmm. I watched a video prior to this and you put a video up on, on your social media um, talking about how your lung function is the best it's ever been. I think you talked to how it was 2.65 or something from a apparatus thing you blew in. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of leads me to the next, uh, next question is, lung transplants now people listening to that it, and I, I must admit when i first heard that it sounds bloody full-on i'm sure it is full-on um, full yeah. this, is, this is your second we just sorry you've just had your second double lung transplant yeah. um before we get into the most recent one going back a little bit what was it like when you first had your first double lung transplant and in particular um actually waiting around for that call um to say we've, we've got a we've got a set of lungs for you what was that like especially at a young age yeah well, well like I said in year 12 I was well it was actually the year after that that I went on the list um which is a scary thing um because you are uh, you're changing uh, hospitals and doctors and someone who's grown up like my doctor was practically my family so there's a whole new thing with that and you know um it was a very, it, it still is to a certain degree, there's lots of unknown variables with transplant. You know, the, the risks as there's more research into it become less and less, but it's still a very risky operation, very hard to do. Uh, so waiting, I was, by the time I got the call, I had two weeks left to live. Um, it was a very slow, in some ways, slow deterioration process. Um, and I literally would just lay on a bed all day. Um, you know, I, I needed help to move basically, you know, I could, I could flex and point my toes and and lift my arms, but, uh, but that was probably about it. And yeah, and basically the, the weight was, we had a lot of pressure on that call because I, at the time thought it was going to be my big savior. Um, it was going to be what, uh, finally the, the answer to, uh, to live a healthy, normal life. Um, so yeah, I was I was obviously on oxygen twenty four seven BiPAP, um, and and the the thing that sucks is there really wasn't that much you could do. You just had to kind of lay there, um, and you know you you sense everyone around you. I'm very close to my family, and you could sense how stressed everyone was um, waiting because you don't know if you'll get the call or not. You might not get it. This is the, this is a, a big discussion going around about organ donation in Australia. We have one of the lowest donation rates. And, um, and yeah, I just literally went to bed every night and just said, I hope today, uh, tomorrow's a better day. But I also came to terms with the fact that if I didn't get the call, I was okay with that. I was in so much pain that I was happy to either let go or go for um, a transplant. Lauren, how old were you at this point? I was 19 when 19. I got the call. Yeah. And, you know, for most of the listeners to our podcast, they're somewhere in their 20s to 40s. And I don't think many of us have ever fathomed what it's like to be thinking I might die and mm. be even accepting of that. And you're at that at such a young age. It's, you know, you say it so casually, but that is such a momentous thing in itself. Mm, yeah, there, and it is a big thing to get your head around. And there's also been those little moments where I was, I was in the bathtub um, while I was on the, on the list and the power went out, my oxygen went out. And I also started to cough and I could never recover from a cough. So uh, I thought in that bathtub that night that I was going to die. My family ran in, were trying to get, just trying to do something, you know, someone was trying to get the electricity back on and it's things like that, that, um, 
you don't think of. It's not just one linear, you know, oh, I might die if this happens. There, there are also these unexpected moments that pop up where mm. uh, during that time, each breath, I thought, this is it. This is the last one because I just could not breathe in. And Lauren, what, what is it like for people listening and, and for myself out of curiosity? What is it like when you say you're struggling to breathe in? What does that actually feel like? Does it actually feel like you're, you're almost suffocating in a way? Oh, absolutely. So with my original lungs, um, because I had so much mucus there, as well as the the deterioration, my lungs were so weak, plus they were full up with this thick, sticky mucus. Um, so they couldn't expand properly. And plus they were dying. Um, it was like I was half drowning, half suffocating. It's like a pillows over your head. With, it's basically like, I don't want to say waterboarding. That's a bit, uh, bit much, but um but yeah, but it felt, but it does feel like a pillow's over your head constantly. And you've just got that very strenuous uh, task to inhale. And Lauren, you had, you got that call for the transplant and mm-hmm. I can't imagine what that must be like, but incredibly <laughs> powerful. And also, um, you know, having worked in transplant medicine at the Alfred in Melbourne at the big heart and trans lung transplant center, people often said it was this, day of immense joy and relief and at the same time also a little bit of kind of sadness because you know there's also another family mourning Mm -hmm. and I can imagine that would be a very complex psychologically yeah I I had to definitely it passes your mind but I knew my focus was on getting through the operation so I put that to the side and I thought that's something I have to deal with later. It's not a priority right now. But of course, automatically you think someone's just died. Um, someone's going through the worst day of their life. And now for someone who's not really, um, you know, I'm not a doctor. I have obviously haven't been through this. But um, <laughs> as far as the lungs themselves, I assume they have to be a match for, for your body. Um, the surgery is obviously mm-hmm. pretty intense. And then, you know, how, how long do those lungs, do they last forever? Do you have to get them reviewed? How does all that work? Yeah, so this is probably one of the biggest misconceptions about organ donation is that it's a cure. Um, it, I think it's it's uh, moving away from that now, but definitely back 11 years ago when I did uh, receive my first pair. The, I think the outlook, first year is pretty good odds. Five years, I think it's about, I don't want to throw out statistics that aren't correct, but it was about 75%, I thought. And then they never had any numbers beyond that. <laughs> So look, let's say if, if you make it to 10 years, you're doing pretty damn well uh, with, with a transplant. But yeah, but I think, yeah, with the, with the misconceptions. So I have cystic fibrosis, but when I get a transplant, you don't get cystic fibrosis back in your lungs. So people then think, well, then you're fine. But the thing is, once you get a transplant, it's a foreign object in your body. It's like I always say, it's like you've got a splinter in your finger and your body is automatic response is to get those cells and push it out it's not meant to be in this body so the whole point of um you know therapy post transplant with your meds is that you'll constantly constantly be on immune suppressed medication so that we tell our bodies it's okay they're part of us don't attack them that comes with a whole nother load of issues (laughs) Um, not always but it can and, um, and, and that's what did happen to me five years after I had my transplant. 
It's such an important topic you raise, Lauren. I'm sorry, I'm putting my medical hat on. No, again. please. But, you know, I've had patients that I've met that have had transplants and they thought it was going to be this magic cure. Yeah. Um, and people, as you said, need to take immunosuppression medication. So you're at really high risk of getting coughs, colds, infections. I will talk about COVID a little bit later in the podcast, but I can imagine this has been a pretty terrifying year for anyone with a transplant. Mm -hmm. And also people that have had organ transplants at increased risk of cancers because um, our immune system plays a very important role yeah. in preventing cancer. A lot of my friends have ended up with cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about transplant, um, there's so much misunderstanding about transplant as well from the donation side of things. You mentioned that Australia has some of the lowest rates of organ donation. Do you want to just, for any, I know I'm an organ donor. Um, I, <laughs> and I think it's a good topic just to briefly talk about. Can you explain why there's such low rates of organ donation in Australia? Yeah, I can, I can talk about the technical side and then my theory about it. Um, so basically, uh, what happens here is that, you know, touch wood, someone passes away. Even if they are a registered donor, that doesn't matter because it's their next of king that makes the final choice whether, yes, to donate or not. So they can actually overwrite your wishes, you know, and that's fine or whatever. But the problem being is that death is such a taboo topic, as we've, I'm sure we all know. And I think a lot of people don't discuss this with their family. So then on top of that, they're being asked this big thing about their, you know, child, their parent, their sister, brother that have just passed away. The last thing you want to do is imagine anything happening to them, even though they have passed. So uh, if it hasn't been talked about previously, people don't know what to do. So if in doubt, say no, really, I think that's the, that's the main issue there. And I don't blame anyone for it either. I, I think it's definitely just something that needs to have more awareness around. Uh, and, and, you know, it, they are uncomfortable conversations to have. I had to have conversations with my parents when we signed documents about, you know, because they are my next of kin. So I had to say whether I wanted to be on life support or not. And, you know, if you know something happened and I was going to end up being paralyzed or something, whether I wanted to continue living, like, you know, you have all these tough conversations and they're icky and they're uncomfortable and we all get that. But I think definitely in the last, I don't know, 50 years, we don't want to talk about it at all. And I think that just comes with the privilege of science. And Well, the introduction of antibiotics and exactly. we're not exposed to, and it's, it's funny because, um, and you know, I've never had a serious health condition, but both you and Hugo have much more experience of thinking about your own mortality, mm. it's actually going to happen to all of us. And there's no point not discussing it as if, and being so uncomfortable because it is, you know, death and taxes. I'm just yeah. going to go to what you said about organ donation. Um, I, you know, I'm a doctor and I've also heard these myths of people saying, oh, I don't want to be an organ donor, then they won't save my life. And yeah. as someone who has been, oh, yeah. <laughs> for me, you know, my entire adult life has been dedicated to saving lives. I don't think people understand the gravity of how powerful it is when you're trying to save someone's life. And that is just not something we would even consider. Like a human life is so yeah. precious and fragile and we do absolutely everything we can to save someone. And organ donation is 
a silver lining of a great tragedy. And I know I've told my family, I'm like, I have bloody looked after my body so well and I don't drink and I don't smoke. If I die, it's going to be a real tragedy. You better buddy donate my organs because I want something good to come out of my (laughs) untimely death. So it's important conversation to have with our loved ones. Yeah. And it's such a massive process on the patient side as well. And the, and the, anonymity I'm not going to say that right um sounds right yeah something (laughs) like that um you know I actually you know tried to ask a bit about my donor but you know you don't get a a thing as you know back as into what what they're like because I just wanted to find out if my donor was female because I was getting female vibes this time and um and yeah, and I see the process. I know I see it from my side, but I also know about the process on the other side. And there's just no way in hell that's happening. And but that's like with anything, it's conspiracy, conspiracy theories. And, you know, people have abused me online saying I'm so selfish. But you know what? It's interesting on the other side of um, a close mate of mine who tragically passed away from a ninja cockle when he was in year 12 when we were at school. Mm. Um, happened very suddenly, very tragically. Fortunately, he was an organ donor. Um, his dad's a massive advocate for organ donation. And, you know, they think recently in the last few years or something, you know, found a few years after the, the death found out, you know, that something, a vital organ went to save another person's life. And, you know, you speak to the dad about it, who's would take his son back in an absolute heartbeat, obviously, but mm. he's still very, you know, something about him that feels that, you know, Jack lives on in a way and that he's saving lives well beyond his, w- when he passed away. I think that's pretty powerful when you look at it that way. Oh, it's, it's, it's extremely powerful. I think um, we just need to shift the way that we're, we're thinking about it too. I mean, there's been a, there's so much guilt and uh, and mental health issues with transplant recipients because of the fact that someone has passed and the way that everyone sort of talks about it to us in in certain ways uh, there's, there's this sort of pressure to always be grateful and always do this and that don't get me wrong I find it it's it's impossible not to have a transplant without feeling grateful but then there's this extra pressure that we have to behave in a certain way you have because... a third glass of wine you're being disrespectful or something yeah, like that absolutely and you know I like to compare it to a treatment and like I, I take care of my body like as best as I possibly can but you know it's the same as getting a cancer treatment or any other kind of treatment it's a treatment and it's to extend my life I, and... I, I get that too Lauren when yeah, even, you do yeah you know, even little things like um being cancer free or something, if you know, I'm having alcohol or drinking or, you know, if I'm having the occasional bit of processed meat or something and you do get the occasional person that would say, um, you know, oh, is that really the best thing, you, you know, you should be having or something given what I've gone through and you still get that. And yeah. I'm sure they treat their body like a temple. Oh, I know, exactly. But or something. It can be frustrating. It can be frustrating. But now look, Lauren, you mentioned something um, in our previous conversation just then, how uh, death is quite a taboo topic. Um, and it kind of leads me a nice sort of segue onto the oh, next um, next going. question. Yeah. Um, you're on a show called Taboo, uh, coincidentally enough, um, which is based around that that premise of of you can't ask that question. And great show, great concept. But you just want to talk about what Taboo was in your time on the uh, the TV show Taboo. Yeah. So essentially, uh, me and three other what they call terminally ill. Uh, people we we went away for three days I think it was and just did some fun activities with this comedian called Harley Breen he's awesome 
And um, he just got to know us, interviewed us. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, we went and he did a stand-up show about us, about the what we brought to his attention. <laughs> Which people listening probably hear that and go, what? He's making comedy acts about people living with terminal diseases. Look, when I first got approached, I was very iffy about the, the pitch as well. This is at the height of maths as well. And I thought, what? They're going to, this is a new low. They're putting all the chronically ill people together and got to <laughs> fight over our illness. Um, no, but look, it's one of those things where I think you just have to watch it to actually appreciate it. It was tastefully done, I feel. And it also was done in a way, it ticked every single box of mine, which is to not be too reverent about illness or death and, uh, and to have a bit of a laugh when you can. I mean, you know, there were some teary moments there as well, but that's the whole that's the whole point. If you can cry, you can laugh is my theory. So You're fantastic in it, Lauren. I must have I watched Thank it you. and I thought you you talk about the bringing that sense of humour to a very, um, you know, can be quite emotional topics in conversations and, um, you know, you, you're perfect for that. But it, it was a really powerful show and, um, you know, leading in from that sort of the, the premise of the show, what, why do you think um, these topics, um, you know, around your own mortality and death uh, are so taboo? Look, I think <laughs> if I talk about my death, it makes the person feel uncomfortable. And I think one of the biggest reasons is because it's a mirror up to their own mortality and they don't want to think about their own mortality. So, um, and then also people don't know what to say. So they rather just avoid the topic altogether. And yeah, I feel like we're just, we're, this is just sort of where we're at right now in society. I think it's slowly changing. I think, you know, with the, with the growth of mental health awareness and everything that comes with that, I think the, the subject about uh, a death is actually becoming more open um, to talk about. I think that's a great explanation. And I think when, as you mentioned, mental health, that's quite similar. Why do we feel so uncomfortable talking about mental illness and suicide? And I think often it's because we're maybe projecting some things in ourselves that we haven't, you know, worked through or it triggers us of our own problems with our mental health. Mm -hmm. This wasn't a planned question, Lauren, but I'm going to ask, you said it makes people feel uncomfortable, you know, talking to you about, you know, your cystic fibrosis and that your prognosis. Do you have any advice for people that may have a friend that's just been diagnosed with a terminal cancer or they know someone that's been diagnosed with a terminal cancer? What advice would you to give them of how to talk about it? Give them the option to talk about it. I mean, everyone's different I at different stages in the acceptance. And if they've just recently been diagnosed, sometimes they don't know how they want to talk about it. Uh, I think the best thing that you can do for someone uh, is, is actually ask them. One of the best things a friend asked me is, look, I don't understand any of this, but I want to be there for you. How can I be there for you? And that was one of the best gifts she could have given me because then I was in the lead. I could bring up the conversations to her. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's wise to push things if they're not ready to talk about it, but I think genuinely being there and letting them know you're there is, is very crucial uh, to having support when you're in, in this time and when you're, um, you know, experiencing health difficulties. So if, um, for example, if they're not comfortable talking about it after you said that, that's fine. But it doesn't mean then you kind of don't talk to them at all. <laughs> I think a lot of people get confused with, I don't want to talk about that to leave me alone. If they don't want to talk about a specific thing, you can still ask them day-to-day -day questions. The simple message is there, which I love, is that 
You don't need to know the answer. Just being there saying, how can I be there for you? I think is amazing. Um, and it's, it's something that I've got a lot out of and it's someone mm-hmm. that can just say, Hey, I'm here for you. And you, and also you said as well, talk about other things as well, because that illness doesn't define you. That illness isn't mm-hmm. everything. And sometimes just talk about the footy or something completely unrelated or some other passion in your life can often be a really welcome distraction. Yeah, absolutely. On my worst days, uh, if someone sends me a story of something happened, something funny that's happened to them when they've gone to the shops or something, that's just lightened up my day because it, you know, it's distracted me for a bit and I know they thought of me while this thing happened. You know, it doesn't have to be a big thing. In saying that, when I say don't push it, if there's a there's a big thing, like people don't know what to do in those awkward moments, I call them awkward, they're probably a better word for it. But you know, if someone has passed away, or if someone's going through a chronic illness, and they don't know what to do, uh, you can be there for them in so many little ways. Even if they say, Oh, I, I don't need anything. That's on the that's on them to ask you as well. Then you have to reach yeah. out and say, I need you right now. Absolutely. But if for some reason they don't, you know they're struggling. I think a, a great thing that can always happen is just offer specific things like I can walk the dog today. Oh, I've got some leftovers. Um, I'm gonna bring them around. Is that okay? You know, these little things. Uh, that you can, I call them physically do, not so much in the talking section. Um, if, if, if that's something um, that you're able to do, I think that's great as well. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful advice because then as yeah, it's not on the person who's reaching out for help to say, I need this. And Lauren, you mentioned those dark days. I guess, you know, you did absolutely nothing to deserve cystic fibrosis. You just, your parents had an unlucky roll of the dice that they both had one gene. And then when they got together, you were the unlucky roll of the dice because it was only a one in four chance of you then being born with cystic fibrosis. Going through this your entire life, at times, have you just not been like angry at the world that why did this have to happen to me? Like, how do you deal with not that consuming you that, you know, your life has been so impacted. You've had two lung transplants. You're only young. Ooh. And not just being spiteful and bitter about that shit hand of cards. Good question. <laughs> I'm actually fuming right now. No. You put um, on a very good facade. <laughs> um, look, I think I got rid of the anger many, many years ago. Uh, but there are still times where I'm just defeated and frustrated. And I think there is a difference with that. I don't, I gave up on the blame game a long, long, long time ago because there is no one to blame. Who did you blame? I'm- <laughs> exactly. I'm like my parents. Thanks for giving me dodgy jeans. Like, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, I think cause it is something I grew up with too. I've never really blamed anyone, but I, I think definitely I've been angry at the situation, especially growing up. I, I'd get furious because I think there was no comprehension. There was no reason for this. And that's like, what I think sometimes we try and find reason behind tragedies. Like mm-hmm. everything happens for a reason. And I'm like, um, fuck that. There yeah, is no reason thing people say to you. <laughs> behind the five-year-old getting leukemia or, you mm-hmm. know, um, famines in developing countries. And I think if we try and rationalize and justify things that can get us into a really dark space. Absolutely. I think my thing is, is that I just try and make the best of the situation. It doesn't mean the situation was meant to happen. It doesn't mean there's a bigger life purpose. I feel like you just make the best of what you've got. And there are positives in any situation if you look for them. I mean, you know, I, 
I think that was something that my parents did very well, you know, for every negative and worry that I had there. They, they did talk about it with me, but then, you know, there, there also was a positive to that negative. So uh, I'm just trying to think of an example here. But... No, no, I, I can think of an example for you. Yeah, um, Purely because I, I really could relate what you're saying about, you know, making the best of a bad situation. Um, and then I think having looked into what you've created in the gifted life, for example, and the, you know, awareness you've created online, you know, yes, you'd rather not be living with what you live with. You'd rather not have cystic fibrosis, but then at the same time, you've created this powerful community, gifted life. You've no doubt mm-hmm. helped thousands of other people out there as a result of a, a really bad situation. So that's an example of, Hey, look, look, look at the good you've done as a result of that, which is pretty impressive. I, I think the, the best thing that I did was actually uh, tell my story. I hid it for so many years. You know, when I was saying I was in year 12 and had all that going on, no one really knew that was happening. I'd text my mom if friends were coming home from school. I'm like, can you hide all my stuff? Which would be my medical equipment. So my nebulizers, my CPAPs, my, you know, all of that. And, uh, and no one really knew because it is an invisible illness, you know? And then, um, I even went as far as wanting to change my name for um, for when I was in uh, college because I didn't want anyone to Google and find newspaper articles about me being the sick girl because I thought it would affect a career. And then when I started rejecting again, that's when I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'll embrace this story, my story, start telling it. And once I did that, I found the power, gosh, don't want to sound wanky, but I did. No, I, I want all the wankiness. Yeah, yeah great. Um, no, I found the power in that because out of the woodworks, um, people started messaging and saying, oh my gosh, this is me as well. I didn't know anyone else was going through this. And, you know, we started talking and it was just this big relief that I wasn't the only one thinking and feeling these things because, you know, I, I haven't actually said this, but with cystic fibrosis, you can't actually be, just think all cystic fibrosis patients have COVID and we can't interact with each other. It's like the best um, way to explain it. So growing up, I never had a community with people around me with the same illness to talk to. And then, then it went on to transplant. And then by transplant, it's this kind of weird, the, the age group is weird. You've got the people who are quite old, Uh, getting a transplant so they can see their grandchildren but when I was 19 I wanted a transplant so I could go and live my life like you know so you had a lot of just very different people uh with with what you were going through as well and I think I found that community online and I think we can make so many parallels with a medical illness or not trying to hide who we really are from the world is exhausting and you said it was and it's very normal especially in young people and adolescents and you know this is a mental health podcast but when you can actually be yourself tell the world how you're feeling that is such a relief and things that we are embarrassed and obviously you should never have been embarrassed or felt shame for your illness um but you completely did though (laughs) and but in the same way people with mental illness shouldn't feel shame or embarrassment but if we show and tell the world there is that shame is taken away because you can't be made to feel shame for something that you're proudly sharing. Yeah, I've absolutely embraced it. And I think when I was, we'll go back to when I was 18 and I knew that I was, I was getting worse and worse. And that's when I was diagnosed with depression, um, clinical depression. So you, you mentioned the, the, the power and you said, you don't want to sound wanky, but I actually wrote down <laughs> the power of storytelling because, yeah. um, 
it, it can be really powerful, but not just to help others, which I think is one of the most rewarding things. And you probably find the same when you, when you actually have people messaging you who don't even know saying, I just want to say, thank you for sharing your story. It's helped me through X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z. That's really powerful, but not only does it help others, it helps yourself. And it's, it's almost oh, yeah. like that big weight lifted off your shoulders to go, you know what, here's, here's what I'm going through. Here, here's Lauren Rowe. And it's kind of in, in a way that's, um, that's kind of, you know, help, helpful in itself um, as well as helping the other people. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I tend to do it as we've talked about in, in a way of comedy, cause I feel like it is more palatable for a lot of people. Um, if you do add a bit of comedy to it, because like we are saying with the taboo topic of death, you know, if you add a if you add a bit of a joke in, then people kind of relax a bit more because they're like, oh, okay, okay, this isn't too bad. Like you know. No, exactly right. And <laughs> you generally have that really positive um, outlook at life, and and you did touch on before that you know yes, you have definitely have down times as well, and you have gone through bouts of depression, and but you've really um, from the sounds of it learnt to to kind of co- great coping mechanisms, and over the years with your mental health, you know how how have you found that you know you you went from being diagnosed with clinical depression and and now you you are so positive and you've recently just had a double lung transplant but what are some of those sort of coping mechanisms and how have you managed your own mental health over the years yeah well i think i did therapy um so just seeing a psychologist for about 10 years i think um i haven't seen one for the last few years because i just use what she's given me and it works for me so that's good you know, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because when I go to articulate what I do, I have to really think about it because it's so engrounding me now, like what I what I do. But I think, you know, it really is feeling where you're at and knowing your body and knowing your mind. When I, I can feel, oh, this is a bit of a down day, I know exactly what I need to do for myself, which would change person to person. I'm like, okay, I need to just take a step back. Um, a lot of my anxiety is actually about doing things because... I haven't been able to, so I feel like wasting time is a big thing for me. So if I have one of those days and I feel the anxiety starting to build up in me thinking I'm just wasting time, like, no, you're not, you're going to enjoy yourself today. Like it's just catching yourself with those thoughts, um, catching them early. Yeah. Being self-aware. And I talk about learning the, our own recipe for our mental health. We're all going to have our own recipe of what works well, but the most important thing is learning to be self-aware and catching yourself before Mm -hmm. you get to that kind of, you know, really worked up into a tether state. I'm going to mention, you said that this year it leads on to something I'd like to talk about quite well Mm -hmm. is not being able to do things. Um, I can imagine Mm -hmm. living with one cystic fibrosis, which for our listeners, it's associated with lots of very nasty lung infections and then having organ transplants where you're immunocompromised, you're at very high risk of getting infections. Living in the COVID-19 pandemic, I imagine it was pretty terrifying. And then seeing, you know, people parading on the street saying, you know, masks and muzzles, you can't, you know, I'm not going to get vaccinated and um, just let it go through the community with very little respect for people like you who would essentially most likely die if you caught COVID. Can you tell us how the last 18 months has been for you in that respect? Yeah, it's definitely been tough. That's for sure. Um, I was lucky that when I got my transplant, because obviously I I spent I think two or three weeks in ICU for that. um, There was a lull in COVID. So I wasn't 
in the, because St. Vincent's is a COVID hospital. So I was really lucky actually that I, I didn't cross with that, but staying home and such and seeing these people, I think I did cry when I saw the first protest because I just, the dread of knowing how infection spreads, it's been <laughs> built into me from a young age. Um, you know, to, to have it on record, I think this is the thing. No one is saying it's, it's wrong to not get vaxxed. If, if you've done your research and you believe that, like this, you know, I, I'm not going to force it on anyone. I'm obviously a big vaccination believer. Um, but in saying that, if that's your choice, please don't go and, and sort of rile people up with it, for one, and, and don't do things that put other people in jeopardy, like protesting and not wearing a mask. Um, the people who say, you know, it's just a vulnerable community, um, it doesn't matter. You know, it's probably not the first time I've heard it. I think this is the most we've recognised it, but that's been an undercurrent for our community in a long time. This world isn't set up for people with chronic health conditions. So that kind of manifests in a lot of different ways, even if it isn't said out loud, um, you know, through day to day, as you know, from employment to just even friendship circles, there definitely is um, always an undercurrent of people with chronic health aren't as worthy as the healthy. You know, I'm lucky that I'm in a good place about that. And I'm very proud of who I am as a person. But I also know who I was about 10 years ago. And I know someone else out there, there's a, you know, a 20 year old out there who is taking this on very personally and thinking I'm not worth this. Um, and that infuriates me. If someone is going out of their way to put other people down and going out of their way to infect the community, going out of their way to really just create unnecessary drama. And I have to try quite hard to, to not get angry mm -hmm. at that because I, I feel like, you know, we always knew these people existed, but the fact that they're actively going out and and actively are affecting us all because it's just self, you know, selfish, isn't it? It's just absolutely selfish. selfish. I just, I, I can't. <laughs> sometimes I can't even talk about it because I get so angry. I've gone from really patient uh, when you first asked the question to now getting, <laughs> well, I'm getting riled up. We, we can have a chat offline and really get into some good swear words. But I think what you said is incredibly powerful about the people living with chronic illness and not feeling worthy and. I love that you said you're at a place now that you know how untrue that is and you know your worth in the world. But as you said yourself 10 years ago, and I think there's so many parallels here with mental health as well. And thinking about the language we use, because when we talk about other people as well, because we don't know what's going on with the person that's hearing, we don't know the demons they're struggling with mm. and something that we could so easily say can be so hurtful and so offensive and someone who's living with a disability or a chronic illness for someone I've, you know, I've never had a disability or an illness. You two, unfortunately both have lived with them. I'm so naive and I'm sure I probably said things that are insensitive. And I just, I'm quite touched by what you said that this is not just in COVID it's been your whole life and we all need to be so, you know, self-aware. of. And I think what you've said, like just then, like you might've said something, um, definitely not to me, just FYI, but, um, you know, but the thing is, is that you're coming from a good place and, you know, you are sincere in, in how you're chatting to people. So, you know, if people do slip up and say something that might be offensive, but the intention behind it was sincere, I, I don't think, don't beat yourself up because I don't think that really matters in the big scheme of things. I think it is more, when there, there can be that vindictive side to people where there is intent behind those words and, um, and, you know, and just that pure ignorance and not wanting to learn. I feel like 
that's when there's an issue. If you're open to learning, you're, I'm sure just from this little Zoom chat, <laughs> um, you know, I would feel so open to you to be like, oh, maybe not a great idea to say that. Like, you know, but, but generally speaking, like I don't think people need to tiptoe around people with uh, illness either. And this is what this whole podcast is about. Education, all mm. right. And yeah, hopefully people pick up a couple of little things and we all educate ourselves because you're right. We all can you know, get a better understanding on certain yeah. things. And like I said at the start, I didn't know much about cystic fibrosis before I really looked in your, into your story. And I'm sure there are plenty of other illnesses out there that people live with every single day. And I know you've touched on the word invisible illness. People have these invisible illnesses where from the outside, they seem just like you, just like me, uh, normal people, normal everyday people. No one would have Absolutely. any idea that before this podcast, you've had to blow into a, a lung function test to test your <laughs> lung functions and you know you struggle to walk upstairs every now and then. those types of things people would have no idea yeah three months ago I was in bloody ICU and look at us now <laughs> Jeez, that's, that's unbelievably impressive the way you said before I spent three weeks in ICU is like a for you it's probably nothing and, and here you are a few months later and you, you look fantastic but I'm sure you still still have some struggles and on a day-to-day basis no doubt yeah absolutely but you know I think yeah, that, that's that's the beauty and the and the beast of invisible illness. You've got you can get away you can get away with a lot, as in with the normal perception. I'm doing that with inverted commas, yeah. um, and that can help you in a lot of ways, and that can be to your advantage. But it can also be a disadvantage uh, when people can't actually physically see your struggle because yeah. uh, it can be easily overlooked. Absolutely, Lauren. And- and look, wrapping up towards the, to the back end of this podcast and, um, you know, you, you started out saying how, you know, you, you've lived ever since your whole life with, with this, this chronic illness. And we talked about your first, um, you know, double lung transplant and, and over the years that sort of you having to get used to that different childhood and upbringing and, and that isolation just became your norm. And, and in a way, this, this lockdown that a lot of people have experienced in the last 18 months, you, you've spent big chunks of your life in lockdown. And it's been um, truly inspiring hearing your journey and your transformation um, to, to creating the charity, The Gifted Life, and helping so many thousands of people out there. And like you've just touched on, you're only three months out of ICU having your <laughs> second double lung transplant and hopefully from now on it's you know it's, it's it continues to be some good news for you but you're full of wisdom um lauren you've already got plenty of takeaways this episode which i love i'm sure um i've been writing a few down myself but to finish off to make uh, one thing that izzy and i like to do with each guest is to to challenge ourselves with a bit of a, a mental health or well-being challenge and also for the listeners so is there something you can finish off on that we can go away from this episode on those listening with a little bit of a well-being or mental health challenge. Okay, I confess to you guys, I was listening to some of your podcasts to try and get ideas from your previous <laughs> guests, and I still haven't got something. But from the top <laughs> of my head, I think this week, if you can surprise someone by doing something nice for them, that you don't get anything in return. I, um, I think that's something that we can all do because I, I know everyone has limitations right now. Uh, so it might not be a practical thing to go for a run or, or I think I love, that's a, I love, love that challenge. That's that, you know, yeah. and that's it. Like you don't have to, I think surprising someone with something nice without expecting anything in return. So it can be a little simple gesture for, to anyone in your life, but just surprising them with a simple, nice act without expecting anything back. I love that. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> a really fantastic way to finish. And I think it, 
it really summarizes the person that you are. You're, 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 you're a beautiful soul. And, um, you know, I would have loved to the fact that we could have done this face to face. Um, but, uh, look, even just getting you on it and seeing your, your big smile virtually is, is amazing. <laughs> and I, I can't believe you're only three months out of ICU and you you look fantastic and we really do appreciate your time today, Lauren. And thanks oh, so much thank you so on. much guys. This has been fun and I'm loving the stash. Oh, thank great. You. It's a, uh, Getting right into the Movember spirit, which is great. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thanks so Thanks, much guys. again, Lauren. Wonderful to meet you. You too, Izzy.